Uh, want to turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to be going to Ruth today, and I just want to say, you know, I love the Word of God. It's um, it's so awesome, and uh, I love it when God shows me stuff, reveals stuff to me, and it's it's just so deep that He just continually. He continually reveals these things to us as we're faithful to His Word, you know? While they're, while they're dispersing, let's, um, let's just pray. Lord, we, we pray that You would uh, come and, and speak powerfully to us tonight, God. And Lord, we pray that, that Your Holy Spirit would just move powerfully in this place, God. And, and Lord, that You would make us more like You tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Uh, in Ruth, we're gonna we're gonna start reading in chapter three. But in in Ruth, uh, chapter one, verse one, it tells us that this story about uh oh, <laughs> I broke it. There we go. Um, it tells us that this story about Ruth and Boaz took place during the time of the judges. And if you've read the story then you know that Boaz is David's grandfather. And so you can place the time right about maybe 20, 30 years before uh, the kingdom started with Saul. And it's kind of interesting, you know, the time of the judges was a time of spiritual corruption, of, of spiritual decline, of, of moral confusion. And uh, I think this story about Ruth and Boaz kind of speaks to the fact that you know, God, despite being in the midst of a, despite the people being in the midst of a morally corrupt nation, God still uses people who will seek Him and who will follow Him and who will submit to Him. You know, and, and I think a lot about our nation today and how corrupt the government is and, and how broken the system is and, uh, you know, just all the, all the bad stuff that happens in America. But I want you to understand that God still uses people who will seek Him in the middle of our, of our, of our kind of messed up nation, you know? And, and although we've gotten a long way from that, God's still working in America, you know? And that's an awesome thing, and that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but I just think it's a great, it's a great overarching uh, theme of the book of Ruth. And uh, so anyway, here we are, and there was this Jewish man named Elimelech. And Elimelech lived in Bethlehem, and he had a wife named Naomi, and he had two sons named Malon and Chilion. And uh, in Israel, is my mic flopping around again? Last, last time I spoke with this thing, it was flopping around like this, so I'm a little... Kobe, just go like this. If it, okay. <laughs> uh, there was a famine in Israel, and... Uh, these guys were farmers, and so um, Elimelech sold all of his land, all of his stuff, and he relocated his family east over the Jordan River on the other side of the Dead Sea to Moab. And while in Moab, Elimelech died. Uh, the, the Bible indicates that he died kind of early, um, before his time. And while in Moab, his two sons took wives from Moab, and their names were Orpah and Ruth, the 
the woman who this book is named after. And after about 10 years of living in Moab, the two sons died. And so now Naomi finds herself with uh, no male provider, which in those days was a very, very bad thing. And she's in a foreign country and she's on the quick road to poverty. And so she hears that the uh, famine in Israel has ended. And so she decides, well, if I'm going to be in poverty, I might as well go and be in poverty in my homeland. So she returns to Bethlehem. And you really should read it because there's, there's a lot of cool stuff that happens. But in short, uh, Orpah decides to stay in Moab and Ruth returns to Israel with her mother or mother-in-law. And um, now, but remember, Elimelech had sold everything that he had. They didn't have anything to go back to. And so when they returned to Bethlehem, they had nothing. They were very poor, very impoverished. Uh, but under the Jewish law, there was an interesting welfare system. It was different than our welfare system. And the welfare system was this. Uh, you know, most people were farmers, and so at the harvest time, the farmers would go through the field and they'd have their servants go through the field and they'd, they'd, they'd reap the crop. And uh, they were only allowed to go through and reap the crop once. They couldn't go back a second time. And whatever was left in the fields was for the poor. And the poor would go and they'd, they'd do what, what's called gleaning and they'd, they'd take what was left and bring it home and that was what they ate. That's, that was the welfare system. And uh, so that was a practice of Ruth that she did to feed her mother-in-law and herself. Uh, Naomi was a little older, so she didn't do it. So Ruth would go, and she would go behind the harvesters, and she would glean the leftover crop. And so one day she found herself uh, gleaning in her father-in-law, Elimelech's brother's field, and his name was Boaz. Okay, and we're told... Uh, from the text that, that Boaz was a very wealthy and influential man. And that's important to remember. Uh, it's going to be an important point in a little while. But Boaz, you know, he was kind of doing his rounds, doing his work, and, and he, he sees this woman in his fields, and, uh, and he walks up to his servant, and he says, he says, who's that? You know, who, who's, who's that lady? And, and if you read it, you can, you can clearly see he was kind of smitten by her. He, he, was, he was attracted to her. He thought, he thought she was a pretty woman. And uh, they, told her, they told him that this is uh, Ruth, Naomi's widowed daughter-in-law. And, uh, and so he, he kind of goes up to her and, and, and he, says, he says, Hey, listen, you, know, you, can, you can glean in my fields anytime you want to, you know. Uh, Anytime you want to glean, you come to my fields. And uh, he says, and, and see, see my water vessels? You can drink out of my water vessels anytime you want if you get thirsty. And, uh, and then he says, oh, by the way, what are you doing for lunch? And she says, oh, I'm not doing anything for lunch. And so she came and she ate lunch with him. And uh, after, after she went back into the fields, he pulled his servants over and he said, hey, listen, guys, I want you to allow her to go into even the unharvested parts of the field and, um, and, and on top of that, I want you to, to drop big handfuls of crop on the ground for her so she can get a lot in her, in, her, in her bucket and bring it home and have a lot of food. 
And so anyway, he was clearly interested in her. He was clearly showing her favor. And uh, the Bible says that Ruth continued to glean in Boaz's field until the end of the harvest season. And, and me just kind of reading between the lines, I, I kind of see this as a time where they probably got to know each other a little bit, maybe fell in love. And, um, and so that's kind of setting the stage here. And in chapter 3 of uh, verse 1, reading out of the New Living Translation, it says, uh, One day Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. And this is important. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. And that word redeemer is what I'd kind of like to focus on tonight. The, um, the Hebrew word there is gael, and it means kinsman redeemer. And um, the, the kinsman redeemer had a lot of responsibilities that were defined in the Old Testament law. And I'm going to give you some references um, of where these are found if you want to jot them down and, and look it up. Uh, Leviticus 25, 8-54, Numbers 5, 5-8, and Deuteronomy 25, 5-10 are, are the passages where the roles and rights and responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer is, is laid out and defined, and we're not going to go there for sake of time, but I encourage you to look it up. It'll give you a deeper understanding of, of what we're talking about tonight. But uh, under the Jewish law, if someone were to fall onto hard times and they had to sell their property and sell their property off, the law gave provision and a, and a right for them that if they were able or they found themselves in a place where they could purchase the land back, it was their right to purchase the land back. And some of the properties had time limits, like uh, after two years, if you haven't bought it back, then it's forever forfeited. You can't buy it back anymore. And then some properties, um, if they were unable to buy it back up until what was called the year of Jubilee, then at that year of Jubilee, the, the property would automatically revert back to the original owner. And um, the, the year of Jubilee happened every 49 years. So there's a pretty big gap there. 
and they would price their land according to how far it was to the year of Jubilee because the closer you get, the less valuable the land is because at the year of Jubilee, you had to give the land back to the original owner. And that was the law. And the reason God did that was was because he wanted to keep his people in the land. He didn't want his people being, being forced out of the land due to poverty or, or circumstance. He wanted his people to stay in the land. And uh, for that reason also, he gave power to the, the Gael, the kinsman redeemer. And the power or the right that was given to the kinsman redeemer was is that if my brother had to sell his land and he was unable to buy it back, I also, as the kinsman redeemer, had the right to come and purchase the land back for him to redeem the land. And uh, that, was, that was just the right that they had in order to keep that land in the family. And another responsibility that the kinsman redeemer had was if his brother was married and his brother died, then the kinsman redeemer had the first right to take her as his wife and be the protector and the provider. And um, if, if his brother had died without having a son, then it was his right to raise up a son with his brother's widow and so that he could be the heir and inherit the, the dead brother's land and, and all this stuff. So there's a couple of requirements for the kinsman redeemer, Okay. And these are important, so important that I put them up on the big screen. And that's all, that's, this is the last slide that I have. Uh, the first thing is that he had to be willing. It was not an obligation that the kinsman redeemer redeem land or a man sold into slavery or his brother's wife, uh, widowed wife. It wasn't a responsibility. It was a right. It was a privilege. And so, first of all, he had to be willing. Uh, secondly... He had to be the next of kin. If there was a brother who was closer to uh, the dead brother who had the widow, then, then he, he had the first right to be the kinsman redeemer. And so you had to be the next of kin. A brother, of course, would come before a cousin and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, thirdly, he had to be able to purchase the redemption. And lastly, he had to assume all the obligations of the, of the full estate, of the land that was to be redeemed. Uh, and so these are the four uh, simplified qualifications of the kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth and Boaz, they decided that um, Boaz would enact this right and, and redeem Elimelech's uh, estate and in turn redeem her as, as his wife. But there was a problem. And the problem was is that uh, Elimelech had a brother who was closer of kin to him than Boaz. And so uh, he had the first right to redeem Elimelech's uh, estate. And so Boaz goes to him and he says, hey man, this is what's going on. This is the situation. We got this land from our brother Elimelech that needs to be redeemed. Um, you know, would you be interested in that? He said, yeah, I'd be interested. I, I, I want to redeem the land. And he says, okay. Uh, well, here's the other thing. There is a young uh, widow who is his daughter-in-law. And if you redeem the land, then you also have to redeem her and take her as your wife. And he said, mm, I don't know about that. And a lot of people think he was already married. But anyway, he declined. He said, I don't want to do it. And so now Boaz was uh, in line to be the redeemer of this estate. 
And so if we, if we skip over to chapter 4 and verse 9, it says, Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have, brought, I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name in her dead husband, of her dead husband, and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Now, we remember uh, Boaz was a wealthy man. He was not a man of want. Uh, the Bible indicates that um, that he had all the land and the servants and the crops that he needed. And so something important to realize is, is that he didn't need Elimelech's land. It wasn't something that he needed. Yet because of his love for Ruth, he redeemed the entire inheritance in order to take the one he loved as his bride. He redeemed her. He redeemed the whole inheritance to obtain the bride. Now, if you turn over to Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, there's a parable that Jesus told. And I think a lot of times it's misunderstood. And, you know, I can't say 100% that I'm right about this, but I believe that that, that it has a different interpretation than, than most people usually apply to it. Uh, Matthew thirteen forty four says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything that he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Now, keeping in mind the typology or the symbology of the Old Testament as we interpret this, uh, this parable, I believe in this parable that, well, first of all, I believe that Boaz is, a, is an awesome and, and, and very cool type or symbol of Jesus Christ. You know, and that he, he, he purchased the whole inheritance in order to obtain the bride. And here, I believe that Jesus is the man, that the world is the field and that the church is the treasure. And Jesus came to earth and he sold everything that he had in order to obtain the, tre- the, the, the field, which is the world, so that he could take the treasure, which is us, the church, out of it. It's an awesome picture. See, when Adam sinned, he sold out this world to Satan. And he, 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 he brought himself under the slavery of sin. And um, before Christ came... Man was spiritually bankrupt. We had no way to redeem ourselves from our sin. But like Boaz loved Ruth, God loved man. God loved us. God loved you. And he sought to redeem us. God sought to become our Gael, our our kinsman redeemer. And I want to show you something. I I just want to walk through these real quick, and I'm going to give you just some scripture uh, first, he was willing. John 3.16 says, For God, God loved the world so much 
that He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Secondly, He became a man so that He could be the next of kin. Hebrews 2, 17-18 tells us, Therefore, it was necessary for Him to be made in every aspect like us, His brothers and sisters, so that He could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then He could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since He Himself has gone through suffering and testing, He is able to help us when we are being tested. The third thing, uh, he, he was able to pay the price of redemption. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, it says, But now, once for all time, He has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by His own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for Him. And then in Romans 5, 17, it says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. So here he is. He's he's already fulfilled these first three. Yes, he was willing. He sent his only son to die on the cross that we might be saved. Yes, he, he was the next of kin. He became a man so that he could be our next of kin and he could stand in our place and, and be the Redeemer. Uh, yes, he was able to purchase. You know, he was, he was righteous and therefore he was able to take on the sin and in his righteousness, he paid the price for our sin. And now, the last thing which is yet to be fulfilled is that, that he must assume all the obligations of the land. He must redeem the land. Okay, now we know... Most of us are familiar with the story in Luke chapter 4. That's where uh, Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And at one point, he, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and he, and he tells him, I'll give you authority over all of these kingdoms if you'll just bow down and worship me, if Jesus would bow down and worship Satan. And what that tells us is, it, it couldn't have been a temptation if it wasn't true. And what that reflects is, is that at that moment in time, Satan... From the time of Adam's sin to the time of Jesus' death on the cross, Satan had still had the rule and the reign of planet Earth. He was was the the owner because of the sellout, because God had entrusted the world to Adam, and Adam sold the world out to the enemy. And so at that time, he had had control of the land. And... uh, But Christ, when He came and He died, He purchased planet Earth back to God. But it hasn't yet been redeemed because God in His mercy has delayed the redemption so that, so that lost, lost men have time to be born again. And so we're standing in that time period between, between um, the, the purchase of the earth and the redemption of the earth. You know, and the Scripture gives us a, a picture kind of similar to what was, what's going on here to this time period that we're, 
we're living in. Uh, everybody familiar, is familiar with David, the, the, the man after God's own heart who became king. He killed the giant, and then uh, Saul was rejected as king, and David was anointed by the prophet Samuel as the king. And there was a time period from the time that David was anointed as king uh, to when he actually became king in which Saul was still on the throne. Saul was still on the throne. Even though David was the rightful king, Saul was still on the throne. And Saul, as he began to notice that, that David was the rightful king and that the kingdom was passing to David, Saul did everything that he could to destroy David. He pursued after him. He, he tried to destroy him. He, did, he tried to destroy the plan of God. He, he did everything that he could to hold on to that which was no longer his. And the same is the age that we live in today. God has redeemed the world back to himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rightful king of this world. And, and, and uh, the Bible says uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, he says, For in that God put all in subjection under Jesus, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things under him. Because right now we're in that transitional period where though Jesus is the rightful king of the world, Satan is doing everything he can to destroy him. Satan is doing everything he can to hold on to the kingdom that does not belong to him. But shortly Jesus is going to redeem the world back to God. And um, in Revelation chapter 5, we get a glimpse into how that's going to happen. This is really cool. in Revelation chapter 5, John, the revelator, John, the, the, the um, disciple of Jesus, he's now old and he's receiving this, this vision from, from God. And, and in Revelation chapter 5, he sees God sitting on his throne in heaven and in his hand is, is a scroll. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And there's a lot of debate over what's written on the scroll because the Bible doesn't specifically say what's written on the scroll. Um, But in Jeremiah chapter 32, there's an interesting passage that I believe kind of sheds light on, on, um, on what might be written on the scroll, what I think was written on the scroll. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 32, God tells Jeremiah to purchase a field that his cousin had had to sell because Jeremiah was the, was the next of kin. Jeremiah was the kinsman redeemer. He was the next in line. And so he tells him to purchase the field. And so Jeremiah goes and he purchases the field. He redeems it. And, and the, the deed to the field is given, him, given to him on a scroll that's sealed. The title deed to the field. So we see in this, in this uh, prophetic action the redemption happening and he received the deed on a scroll. Now, a lot of scholars, a lot of people a lot smarter than me believe that the scroll that God has in his hand in Revelation chapter 5 is the title deed to planet earth that Jesus Christ bought with his blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And, uh, you know, they, they, begin to, they begin to talk, who is worthy to open the scroll? And then John gets upset, uh, no, nobody's worthy. And then the angels begin to sing, and it says in verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, speaking of Jesus. 
And so then Jesus, in the form of a lamb, he, he steps up and he begins to break the seals on the scroll. And the Bible says that as he breaks the seals, the, the wrath of God, the last wrath of God is poured out as judgment onto the earth. And, um, and God's redeeming the earth. He's cleansing the earth as, as Jesus breaks the scrolls, the, the seals. And then as the seventh seal is broken, the Bible says that seven trumpets sound. And, and this, is, this is just so cool to me. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, as the trumpets are sounding, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And then Jesus, the Bible says, after that happens, He's going to come back on a white horse. And, and he's going to return to planet earth and he's going to destroy all of his enemies and he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth. And the Bible says that he's going to reign for a thousand years. And then heaven and earth is going to pass away and a new heaven and a new earth is going to be made and Jesus Christ is going to set up his kingdom forever and ever as King of kings and Lord of lords and the redemption will be complete. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? And... uh and so God will have, Jesus will have uh, fulfilled his role as the kinsman redeemer. He will, have, he will have taken on all the responsibility of the land, but, but something that we have to understand is, is that just like Boaz was a very rich man, God is infinitely rich. The Bible says that everything that we know belongs to him. And so what we need to understand is, is that God so isn't, isn't so interested in planet earth as he is in you. God isn't so interested in, in, in taking this place back. You know, this place is going to pass away. He's interested in us. He's, he's selling everything that he has in order to redeem this world so that he could take the treasure out of it. Because He wants relationship with us. He wants to know us. He wants us to, to be uh, made right with Him so that we can spend eternity with Him. And uh, this, this whole story of the kinsman redeemer gives us such an awesome picture of what love truly is. You know, it gives us this awesome picture of God. And, you know, Christ in His perfect love for the church laid down His own well-being in order to do what was necessary to redeem the church back to himself. And you know, that, that, this is awesome, and, and we could, we could kind of stop there, but we're, we're talking about family this month, right? And, and, and the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.25 teaches us this. And, and we're thinking about all that Christ did, how awesome it is, and he teaches this. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and He gave Himself for her. You see, men, our families are made and they're broken by our willingness to live selflessly for our family for our brothers, for our sisters, for our mothers, for our fathers, 
for our wives, for our children. Family is made or, bro- made or broken by, by the willingness of the men of the church to step up and live selflessly, to, to lay down our own well-being in order to redeem our families into right relationship with God and with us. You see, loving is giving. In John 15, 13, Jesus said, There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. See, the root of family is selflessness. The idea is, you're good at my expense. But the problem is that families all across America and all over the world are being destroyed by selfishness. By the attitude of, my good at your expense. And that's the attitude that, that pervades the family today in so many families. And we must learn to lay our lives down for each other and our families, or we will see our families be destroyed. You know, and, and though the Bible teaches that, that, that this is the man's job to lead, that as men we're to lead in these things, this is what the Bible also teaches. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24, Apostle Paul tells us that wives should submit to your husbands, even as ch- the church submits to Christ. You know what that means? That doesn't, that doesn't mean that, that women uh, are subject to man's every dictate. That doesn't mean that, that man is the, the ruler over the woman in any capacity. What that means is, is that as the man leads in selflessness and following Christ, it's the responsibility of women to submit to that leadership and to follow and to reciprocate that selfless love. But even if your husband or your father or your brother or your son doesn't show that selfless love to you ladies, it's still your responsibility to be selfless towards them, even as it's the responsibility of the church to submit to Christ. It's our responsibility. I want to talk to the parents. I'm a parent now for about a year and a half, and it's opened to my eyes to so many things, you know. And I was just praying one day, and, and God was speaking to me some things, and you know, And I want you to understand I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody, but what are we teaching our children when we put them on the back burner to pursue our own selfish desires? You know, what are we teaching them? Our our children have to be a priority in our lives. They have to be. And if, if we'll just love them and listen to them and discipline them and give ourselves selflessly to them, then they will follow you know, they'll follow. And, you know, I, I know uh, there's a lot of young people without kids here, but I want to tell you something. I, 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 see, I, see, uh, I see dads and moms all over this room, and I speak it over your lives, and we've got to make our children a priority in our lives. We've got to pour into them. We've got to give ourselves to them and build, build men and women of God, you know. Each member of the family has to sell out and serve each other selflessly. We have to buy the field 
in order to, the, to obtain the treasure. And sometimes there's a whole lot of stuff that goes in. There's a whole lot of sacrifice. There's a whole lot of patience. There's a whole lot of uh, frustration that goes into serving your family selfless, selflessly. But there's a treasure there. There's something at the end that's worth it. You know, and we've got we've to we've lay down everything that we have in order to obtain that treasure. And that is family. That's family. And so I'm just going to close here, and I just want everybody in this place to close your eyes and open your heart. And uh, just take a moment to think on the awesome love of God in Christ Jesus. Think about how He gave everything to redeem the world that He might redeem you. And now I want you to look into yourself And I want you to understand that as a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a brother or a sister, that you are the next of kin to your family. And I want to tell you tonight that if you're born again, then God will make you able to live selflessly so that you can redeem your relationships right standing with God and right standing relationship with you. You have the qualifications of the kinsman redeemer. But the question is, are you willing? Are you willing? Are you loving your family selflessly? I'm going to say a short prayer and I'm going to get the guys in the back to put on some music. And if the Holy Spirit has convicted you, I want to encourage you to come and to humble yourself before God. And I want to encourage you to pray that that God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, would cause you, would, would transform you into a person who will live selflessly for your family. Pray that He would strengthen you to give everything that you have to redeem your family as He leads you. And uh, so I'm just going to pray, and you, know, you don't have to come up here if you want to do it. If you want to talk to the Lord at your seat, but we're just going to we're going to end this service with with a moment of application. And uh, I know that we can all live a little bit more selflessly. Amen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, God. We thank you, God, for this good word, Lord. We thank you for your example, Lord, God, as the Redeemer, Lord. And God, I pray that as we think on your awesome love, Lord God, of all you gave, Lord God, to redeem the world, to bring us out of it, Lord Jesus. Pray that, that it would move us and motivate us, Lord God to live as you as you have said lord god to follow in that example lord god and to be a redeemer in our families lord god we thank you god that 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 you are working the work in our families lord we speak over the families that are not here lord god the families of our church lord we we pray that that your that your holy spirit lord god would touch them lord and that that god that that you would work in them lord and 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 change them lord We, we pray for those that are struggling god uh, Father God, we pray for, 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 for 
uh, husbands and wives on the brink of divorce, Lord God. We pray for parents, Lord God, who do not have a grasp on their children, Lord God. We, we pray for, for, uh, for estranged brothers and sisters, Lord God. We, we thank you, God, that you are, you are bringing, Lord God, redemption to the family, Lord. In Jesus' name, we declare it over our church, Lord. We declare it over the church. In Jesus' name.